morning. My name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm a professor of physical therapy at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. We're going to do a podcast today on what it is to be an audiologist and what are the types of things that audiologists do for patients with vestibular dysfunction. With me today, I have Dr. Lori Aber. Lori, I'll have you introduce yourself right now. Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Aber. I also work at the LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. I've been practicing audiology for about 10 years, and during that time I've worked at an ENT office, an audiology private practice, and now at the university. And in all three locations, I've done basic vestibular testing. Thank you, Lori, for being with us today. So first I want to talk about, on a very basic level, what is an audiologist, and what type of schooling do you have to go through to be an audiologist? Um, an audiologist has a four-year undergraduate degree that we complete, followed by a four-year Doctor of Audiology degree. Um, following uh, the Doctor of Audiology degree, we have to pass the national exam, and then licensure is by each state. We, as a profession, focus on hearing and balance from birth to geriatrics. Um, our profession includes doing hearing tests, auditory processing evaluations, hearing aids, cochlear implants, and vestibular evaluations. Um, to a lesser extent, we have a few audiologists that will also do some basic vestibular rehab, but for the most part, audiology is more about the vestibular assessment than the rehabilitation. Okay, great, Lori. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about what the audiologists do in terms of testing for vestibular dysfunction. Common tests that you will run into are an ENG and a VNG. So, Lori, how about you tell us what those tests are and what those letters stand for? ENG and VNG are both very similar tests. The outcomes are pretty much the same as far as the results go. ENG stands for electro-nystagmography. Um, for this test, electrodes are placed around the eyes. And those electrodes will detect the eye's corneal retinal potential to record eye movements or nystagmus. That means the patient's eyes have to have good retinal function in order for this to happen. That eye motion is represented as a graph over time on a computer screen. Benefits to this test are that electrodes can be placed on anyone's face around their eyes. They can be made to fit any shape face or any size face. Uh, the recording speed for electrodes are faster than what we get with the video recording with VNG. And the patient does not have to keep their eyes open for the entire test. This is very important, especially for elderly patients that have trouble keeping their eyes open for long periods of time. Limitations of electrodes are that the setup is a little bit longer. You have to be able to prep the skin and secure the electrodes in place with tape. It also can be difficult to keep electrodes on when you're trying to do some of the different tests that involve motion. You also will get more muscle artifact with electrodes than you will with the VNG. VNG stands for video nystagmography. Um, for this one, a swim mask is basically put on the patient's face. The goggles look just like a swim mask. And there's cameras within, infrared cameras within that mask. <laughs> Um, the cameras will use a pupil localization technology, and they'll record eye motion or nystagmus. Those eye movements are then graphed, just as they would be for ENG, so you get the same recording. However, 
in this case, you can also visualize the eyes on your computer screen. So you get both that nice graph as well as a really blown up magnified view of the eyes, which is really nice when you're trying to see nystagmus. You can also record those eye motions, and then you can go back later to look at those images again to be sure that you're certain of what you saw. Benefits of VNG are obviously that you can visualize the magnified eyes, you can make those recordings, and a big one is that you don't get the muscle artifact that you would with an ENG. Limitations are that for saccade recordings, which are very fast eye motions, the recording is not as quick as you would get with ENG, but it's still sufficient. Um, these goggles will also not fit small children without modifications, and the patient has to be able to keep their eyes open. Great, Laurie, thank you. That was a wonderful overview. So let's talk a little bit about the role of ENG and VNG testing in patients with vestibular disorders. Okay. Um, ENG and VNG are objective tests. The results are recorded, and they're kept in a chart. These tests allow us to quantify ocular motor movements, like saccades or pursuit, and compare them to age norms. This can be very important compared to if you're just looking at the eyes in a bedside format and you can't actually do measurements on them. It also allows us to visualize very minute nystagmus and measure the intensity of the nystagmus. So these tests provide a very objective way of assessing the vestibular system. Great, Lori, thank you. I know it's been really helpful to me. Lori and I have worked together for many years now. Um, and when I do a lot of the same bedside tests that Lori would do with the VNG machine, however, just the role of being able to both record the eyes, look at it on a little bit of a bigger screen, and also have the graphs, that she's definitely able to pick up on a lot of the more subtle things that we can very easily miss by just looking at it with our own eyes. So what are maybe the main tests that you use, and what is some of the basic interpretation of those tests? Um, one of the important things to point out is that you cannot use ENG or VNG results alone in order to make a diagnosis for a patient. So um, we look a lot at case history. Case history is still your most important part of the assessment. We do some bedside examinations. And from that, we can come up with a few disorders that we suspect the person might have. We get an idea of what might be going on. Then we do ENG and VNG. And that gives us a more complete picture to further narrow down those disorders or to back up our suspicions. Um, the result patterns of an ENG or a VNG test can help you suggest an inner ear disorder pattern, central vestibular disorder, or sometimes in some patients it's an ocular disorder. It's not even the ears or the brain, it's more the eyes. And in some cases the patterns might suggest a multifactorial disorder. Great, Lori, thank you for that overview. That's very similar to what we as physical therapists would do, is interpretate um, both the ocular motor test findings along with findings from a gait and a balance exam with the patient history. So I'm really glad to see that that's something that our two professions share. So maybe how about we go over some of the main tests that you would use and what some of those results mean. The VNG or ENG test is broken up into segments. And I'm glad that you mentioned that a lot of the things that we do are the same. Um, you're going to recognize a lot of these tests um, from some of your bedside assessments. In this case, they're just recorded and objectified a little bit more. Most audiologists will start off the test 
doing ocular motor testing. So that will include a test for horizontal and vertical saccades. Um, we want to compare those results to age norms for the patient and make sure that the speed of their response and the accuracy of their response is where it should be. After that, we'll do a horizontal and a vertical smooth pursuit test. And then following that, we'll do optokinetics at several different speeds. After that, we'll do gaze testing, and this is all part of the ocular motor exam, where we have the patient stare at a target in different directions, like left, right, up, or down, with eyes open and without, without vision or without fixation. And we're doing that to look, could the person have some sort of ocular motor disorder? Could they have a central site of lesion? Um, could they have something like MS? So that test gives us a lot of information. Following ocular motor, we'll put the patient on a treatment bed and we'll do positioning tests where the patient has to move and we look for nystagmus. So we'll do a Dick's Hall Pike, head left and head right. We'll also do a head roll test. And for that, we're looking for BPPV, or benign proxismal positional vertigo. And that is a test that a lot of physical therapists will do and a lot of physicians will do. The advantages here are that you're able to see much smaller types of nystagmus that the naked eye might miss, even frenzel lenses might miss. And you can make recordings of the eyes, which will help you tell the direction of that nystagmus easier. After Dix Hallpick and head roll, we generally move on to static positionals. In this case, we'll put the patient's head and then their body into a specific position on the treatment table. So we might do head left followed by body left and so on um, with the right side. And during that time, we're testing the patient with and without fixation to see if we can find any kind of nystagmus and if it would fit a peripheral or a central site of lesion pathway. The end of the test that we always save for the last that everybody just loves or our calorics. Calorics can be performed with either water or with air. Um, water tends to provide the best stimulation. It's the easiest to learn. Air irrigation, however, is a little bit easier to perform because you're not dealing with water coming out of the person's ear. And you can also do it with people who would have an eardrum perforation or a PE tube inserted into their eardrum. Um, many kids have PE tubes and some adults do as well. Both the air and the water irrigation are going to give you the same type of result though. It's just a matter of what that clinic has and what their preferences are. Caloric testing is going to look at how the inner ear systems are balanced. Um, specifically, you're looking at horizontal semicircular canal function, which then leads to superior vestibular nerve function and those central pathways associated with it. And what we're looking for if we stimulate each ear individually, or the response is balanced, is there an equal nystagmus or eye movement between the ears? And is the direction of that nystagmus equal? Um, you know, when you're looking at left beating versus right beating nystagmus, are they equal? Thank you, Laura. That was a really great overview. Um, I think it's really nice to know that you have age-related norms for a variety of ocular motor testing things. And that's something that physical therapists can definitely um, 
find in common with you because we have a lot of established age-related norms for things that we do on our exam, like various static balance testing, gait speed, and objective balance measures like the functional gait assessment. Um, so maybe um, it sounds like you have something to add. So Lori, I would like to add, add something now. Um, I do want to go over the benefits and the limitations of this test. Um, some of the benefits are that you get the recordings of the nystagmus. And you can share those with colleagues. You can go back and look at those. You can put them in a patient chart. You can fax them to someone, and they can look at them and see if they agree with your opinions. You can detect minute nystagmus. Um, you can objectify those results. But the limitations are you can never take an ENG or VNG result by itself. Um, these tracings are not going to give you your answer without having a case history and bedside examinations with it. Um, something very important, especially from a PT standpoint, is an ENG or VNG does not give you functional or quality of life information. So I can tell you how that inner ear might be functioning, but I can't tell you what it does to that patient's life. I can't tell you how it affects them at work or at home. Um, in addition, some patients are going to need more further testing, such as rotary chair, posturography, to get all the information you need for a complete picture. But it, it does provide some really great objective evidence um, to, to help with that picture. Okay, great. Thank you, Laura. That's a really great overview again. Um, one of the things I think that we can, again, we have in common is the fact that we're both not interpreting any of our tests in isolation and looking a well-rounded picture of the patient to try and get a good idea of what's going on. Another thing I really liked about what you said is that um, you want to make sure you're looking at the quality of life, and that is something that us as physical therapists are very, very concerned um, about how this is affecting the patient's quality of life as well. One of the things I think in healthcare you have to be very concerned about is that when there is a lot of overlap, there can tend to be some turf battles and trying to figure out, you know, what our role is in different things. So I would like to hear your opinion on how, how would be your ideal interaction with a physical therapist um, in terms of patient management. I think being able to work with a physical therapist um, for the evaluation and for the rehab is crucial. A lot of what we do as far as testing does overlap. And it's important to the patient to get a thorough workup um, and to get a, to do something with that workup, to do more than just say, okay, you're dizzy, and we think it's coming from this area, um, and then you send the patient home, and they've confirmed that they're dizzy, and there's a reason, but it needs to be taken a step further, and the best way that, that the patient can get better is if an audiologist and a PT can work together. So it's important that the patient get thorough examinations, and then those examinations are given to a PT, and the PT can understand what those results mean, which means there should be an open line of communication between the audiologist and the PT to be able to talk to each other, understand each other's results. In some cases, the patient may not even be very symptomatic when the audiologist tests them, so the PT can do some more testing and get that information back to the audiologist. Um, and then certainly the audiologist needs to know how the patient's doing in care so we know well, what happened to that patient after they left here. Did they just stagnate or did things actually get better for them? 
um, would any further testing help to see if what the PT is doing is helping. But I definitely find that since I've had Rachel to work with, that my patients' results are coming out a lot better. There's a lot of open communication, and that's good for me um, and for the patient. I agree with the line of communication wholeheartedly, particularly one of the specific things that Lori has helped me through in improving my practice over the last six months of the last year is helping to differentiate between positional vertigo and BPPV. So you helping her using her equipment and seeing the graphs and having her help me through it and going through some additional tests, I've really been able to help those patients. And as you can imagine, the treatment is completely different for someone who has BPPV versus someone who has positional vertigo due to another whole reason at all. And then on that same line, as audiologists, we spend years learning about the ear and the brain. And we never really get into the nitty-gritty of the somatosensory system, um, the spine, the legs, the feet. So it really helps when you get a patient that has more than just an inner ear disorder or a straight central vestibular disorder. You know, when, they, when you get those more complicated patients that also have sensory disorders, it helps me as an audiologist to have a PT with all of this education to review the results together, um, bounce ideas off of, refer to, just to get a better idea of how that person's sensory disorder might be affecting their um, balance as well. Absolutely. Sensory information is a big part of balance, as you know. I think a lot of times as PTs, we're stuck in the pattern of we need to a referral from a physician. And in most states, obviously, very different uh, depending on your state practice act and direct access. But here we're practicing in Louisiana. Physical therapists are allowed to do an evaluation but not treat without physician orders. So, Lori, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, referrals to audiology mm -hmm. and what your rules and regulations are. Um, audiology referrals are dependent upon the insurance. Most private insurance insurances will allow the patient to schedule their own appointment with the audiologist and they do not need a referral. Um, some of the different retirement plans and some of the different governmental programs like Medicaid and Medicare do require a referral. Um, so you need to check with that person's insurance or usually the audiologist will know if you give them a call which insurances require a referral. But for the most part, the referrals are for Medicaid, Medicare, and then some of the different retirement plans need referrals. And we are working just like PT is on obtaining that direct access so that way patients can just go straight to us. But for the very, the very short term, we still need those referrals for a few patients. And speaking of being trapped in referrals, I think a lot of times physical therapists are looking at and seeking referrals out from doctors, but realizing that especially as we're towards that doctoral level of profession and practice, that we can also make referrals. And there are certainly a lot of situations um, where I have referred to Lori. I think the most common situation where I refer to Lori or you as a PT would refer to an audiologist is if you get a prescription um, from a neurologist or from an internal medicine that just says diabetes, um, diagnosis, vertigo, or something very nonspecific. And you do your exam and you just think there's something funky going on and you can't really um, pinpoint what it is and you need further testing, I think it's a great referral to an audiologist to get um, a lot of the specific measures like the, the tests that she talked about and looking at the recordings and the tracings and to pick up on a lot of things that really, quite frankly, even if you're great at ocular motor testing, mm -hmm. it's just very difficult to pick up with the naked eye. Um, so maybe, Lori, if you could t discuss a situation where you think an audiologist can refer to a physical mm -hmm. therapist. 
Um, definitely audiologists can refer to physical therapists anytime the patient needs rehab. Um, I also think just functionally wise, looking at our patients, not just the dizzy ones, but obviously we're working with a lot of elderly patients. And quite often they'll come in and um, you'll see that this patient's physical health is declining. You know, they're, they went from walking to now they're using the walker or the cane and maybe they haven't gotten any therapy. Um, certainly just looking at our, our basic caseload, you know, just as far as strength and endurance, a lot of those patients need some help. Also, I know just with working with my hearing aid patients, quite often they'll come in and they'll have large bruises on them. And I'll ask what happened and they fell. Um, and they haven't told their sons or daughters about it because they're afraid of being put into a nursing home. And that's an important time to be able to talk to them and see, are they at a risk for falling? Do they need some PT? Um, so that way they can stay out of the nursing home and they don't injure themselves. In addition, um, as far as audiology referrals go, think more um, past just the dizziness as well. Look at your, your regular patient population. Can they hear you? You know, are you giving them instructions and they, can they follow them? You know, or are they not following them because they can't even hear you? And also with dizziness, we get a lot of auditory disorders um, like hearing loss and like tinnitus. And tinnitus, if it's there 24 hours a day, seven days a week for months, and it's a jet engine in your brain just screaming, it can be very stressful. And Rachel and I have both seen cases where the patient doesn't progress in vestibular therapy because of the tinnitus. Um, that stress there is, is such a psychological stress, just like you get the psychological stress with dizziness, that they just can't progress. So I'd highly recommend if you get someone with an auditory disorder or tinnitus that you get them back to the audiologist for that therapy so then you can make some headway in your therapy as well. Uh, Dr. Aber is also an expert in tinnitus management as well, and I'm really glad that she brought that up because I know that's a common complaint of patients with vestibular dysfunction, and I know most of us out there will ask our patients if there's any changes in hearing um, or any other noises like tinnitus as well. So maybe, Laura, if you could make uh, a couple of quick suggestions mm -hmm. on how the types of advice that a physical therapist can give to patients suffering with tinnitus and maybe where to go and mm -hmm. what are some of the things that audiologists can do for tinnitus? most important thing with tinnitus is to realize there are things the patient can do about it. And quite often they've been told there's nothing you can do. Um, one of the main things they can do is try to surround themselves with pleasant sound. When they're in a quiet environment, the tinnitus will, will just be so, so loud. But if they can turn on some pleasant music, um, a little sound machine. There's all sorts of things to help with sleeping that, that emit noise, sound machines, sound pillows, headbands that play music. Um, things that they can start doing, the more pleasant sounds in their environment, the less they'll notice the tinnitus. More importantly, they need some help most of the time with that tinnitus. And they can always visit the American Tinnitus Association, their website, and they can get a list of providers because not all ENTs or audiologists actually work with tinnitus. It is very specialized. Sometimes you can drive for hours to reach a clinic. But the clinics that do tinnitus, we do amazing work, and it really helps improve that person's quality of life. There's, there's many different types of sound treatment we can do, from very basic, inexpensive things with MP3 players to 
treatments that cost thousands of dollars. But the big thing there is if the patient's really suffering with the tinnitus, get them some help. And I think one of the important things that I've realized about tinnitus in working with Lori um, is that there's a very strong psychological component to that as well, and that there may be some support groups in your area to help deal with that. Mm -hmm. uh, Lori, maybe you want to elaborate on yeah. more. The support groups, you generally you can find through the American Tennis Association, and the person can put in a zip code, and they can find a support group. And what's nice there is quite a few of these support groups are very educational. So the person might go into their ENT office and be told, I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do. Or their audiologist will say, I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do, because that's not a specialty area of theirs. It's very similar to a lot of our dizzy patients go in, and they're told, oh, here's some meclizine, take that for the rest of your life, there's no therapy for it. And we know that's just not true. Same thing for tinnitus. Um, there's definitely therapy for it, it's just finding it. And a lot of these support groups will help um, members find those physicians and those audiologists that will do these therapies. So some really great information on tinnitus, Lori, thank you. Um, so as we wrap up, I want to know if there's anything else that you think that should know about audiologists or the audiology profession or how we can work together to help patients better? I think the big thing is, is remembering that the majority of audiologists are more than open to talking to you about what they do and going over results. Um, as a profession, we're generally a very friendly group and, you know, we welcome phone calls. Um, you know, if you want to start working with an audiologist in the area, most of us would love to meet with you. In fact, most of us have the problem that we can't, we don't know where to find a PT that does vestibular assessments. So we know the patient needs it, we'd love for them to have it, but we don't even know who to refer to. So if you call a few audiologists in the area, they'll probably be very happy to hear from you. And most of us would be very happy to meet with you and discuss what our tests mean and form that working relationship. Um, because certainly, we, I know when I met Rachel, I really didn't know what a PT did as far as um, vestibular assessment. I knew they did vestibular assessment um, and therapy, but I really didn't know what they did. So if you can sit down and have lunch one day together or just go into the office and meet, most audiologists would definitely welcome that. Yep, I agree. My, my interaction with Lori has significantly um, helped my clinical practice and helped me progress with patients. Um, one other thing that we do here in Southern Louisiana that's really nice is um, we try to sit down at, at least quarterly or twice a year um, and have meetings with uh, several local vestibular therapists and audiologists as well to discuss current practice, issues that we're having, maybe discuss some difficult patients, uh, talk about things like outcome measures that we use, or even propose ideas for research and kind of collaboration. And I'm of the mind that definitely two or more heads are definitely better than one. So. And I think the people in the end who benefit from collaboration are your patients and future patients. Um, so thank you, Lori. I think this is a really informative podcast, and hopefully uh, physical therapists out there will be a little bit more knowledgeable about the audiology profession. And like she said, they're a very friendly bunch, so feel free to contact them, um, make plans for lunch, happy hour, get to know them, and um, you'll find that your practice and your patients will benefit. Um, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Take care and enjoy your day.